Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Hey, man. You know what? I'm bonkers. I'm just bonkers about today's episode because we have a guest. We have Russell Guest. Joining us from the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Welcome, Russell. All right, it's good to be here. I did not legally change my last name because I became a guest on this show. That that just was my name. I was born with it. Yeah, I'm here. I'm so glad you said that because I couldn't come up with a good joke in the moment. I wanted to improv or, or do something impromptu and I failed, but you just you came in and saved the day. Thank you, Russell, guest host. Russell, thank you so much for being here. Uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast? The Retro Movie Roundtable podcast is a podcast that gets this, talks about movies. And uh, in this case, if you like the All Ladies podcast, I can assure you, you probably will also like our podcast, the Retro Movie Roundtable. The big difference is we're 10 years and older, so it could be anything as new as the O's, and it could be anything as uh, old as... Gosh, we've even done a silent movie in the 20s. So, I mean, it, it's anywhere and all in between. So Jason came on last year yeah. and did the right stuff with us. So an great. 80s movie very appropriately. So if you're uh, looking for a place to start to hear a familiar voice, that's definitely a great place to begin. Right on, man. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a blast. And uh, you guys did a great job with that episode. And you do a great job with every episode, actually. So check out the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. And you know what? Thanks for sharing, Russell. But the simple fact is, we need to know more. So we came up with a list of rapid-fire questions to ask you. Are you ready, my friend? I am. Here we go. What was the first movie you ever saw in the theater? I think it was The Land Before Time from 1988. Aha. Good one. Can you give us a quick review of the last movie you saw that wasn't for your own podcast? I saw Gravity from 2013. Didn't see it at the time when it came out. And I don't know whether Neil deGrasse Tyson just put a dampener on it for me and just said, like, none of this can happen. It's all fake. And I was like, ah, I'm not messing with that. Came back to it and Neil deGrasse Tyson, nobody cares. Nobody wants your opinion. This movie is just fun. It's action packed. It's a lot of great effects, great visuals, good times are had. Sandra Bullock, George Clooney, it's all good. I, re I would recommend it. You just made me want to revisit my, uh, that one myself. I love that movie. Russell Guest, what is your go-to snack food when watching a movie? You know... I like Sour Patch Kids a lot, and I think Sprite goes good with it. But if somebody else also gets popcorn, I would like to have some of that as well. So I will mooch off somebody's popcorn, but fully commit to an overpriced back box of Sour Patch Kids. We will now nickname you Minnie the Moocher. Who is your favorite actor and or actress? For comedy, it's Bill Murray. For thrills, it's Harrison Ford. And then like for just all-around performance, I dig Jimmy Stewart and Robin Williams. So I didn't answer that with one answer. I categorized it because it's hard to do. All good answers. Last but not least, what is your favorite movie of all time? Well, I did say Bill Murray is my favorite guy. He will be in today's movie, but my favorite movie, it's probably What About Bob? I love this movie. My family just watches it. We relish it. It is a good time. It is by the director, Frank Oz, who you may hear some more of his work also coming ahead of you today. So what about Bob? Now, if you combine all three of the Star Wars trilogy then that's like a trump card for me. But you asked me what individually is my best movie. So Awesome. Great answers. 
So let's get to it. Russell, what 80s movies did you choose for us to discuss today? Little Shop of Horrors, because we all need to learn, don't feed the plants. Excellent choice. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this subscription on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Business is blooming at Mushnick's Flower Shop. Customers are rushing in to see the exotic potted plant called Audrey 2. But if they knew the truth, they'd rush right out. Audrey 2 is more vampire than vegetable. It's a mean green mother from outer space who's about to fill Mushnick's little shop with kooky horrors. Little Shop of Horrors first flowered in the same titled 1960 Roger Corman movie, re-sprouted into the smash 1980 off-Broadway musical, and now comes to full comic bloom in this star-packed, laugh-filled dazzler. The stage musical's 1986 film adaptation that boasts Academy Award nominations for Best Original Song and Best Visual Effects. Director Frank Oz keeps all fuses burning so that the laughter explodes again and again. Sure to delight are stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, reprising her stage role, Vincent Gardenia, and, as the biker dentist who's the leader of the plaque, Steve Martin. Bill Murray, John Candy, James Belushi, and Christopher Guest show up in fall-down funny cameo roles. And Audrey, too, comes to mean green screen life via the wizardry of a gifted special effects team and the commanding voice of original Four Tops singer Levi Stubbs. It's the most outrageous musical comedy in years. Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. So, Russell, uh, why did you choose Little Shop of Horrors for us to talk on our podcast? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, it's an 80s classic for starters. I love musicals, and this music is great. I love comedies. Comedy is probably my favorite genre, and I like the cast here a lot. So as you mentioned, it's got so many things that I like coming together. So the Venn diagram for me on this one looks like a complete circle. It's just complete overlap of all things that I love. To me, it's just it's a great time, and it's gotten better and better with rewatch. Over and over. I've enjoyed the stage performance more than once. I haven't seen it in the big leagues, if you will. I've seen smaller, more local type run kind of performances of it. And I've just come to love this movie more and more with time. Awesome. Jason, do you have any initial thoughts about Little Shop of Horrors? Oh, you know me. I'm a blowhard. I'm going to give you some initial thoughts. First off, I love the establishing of the set and the setting with the theme song. It's the prologue with the Little Shop of Horrors kicking in with our chorus, our trio with a little uh, Tisha Campbell. Oh, she's great. The other two are wonderful, too. I don't want to exclude them. We are immediately transported into the musical film world, and it requires a type of, like, suspension of disbelief and a particular kind of uh, a blend that this opening accomplishes. You know, it's that kind of between reality and we have to that just go with it factor. Now, as well, it fills out this common trope of the downtrodden of the downtown inner city, in this case, Skid Row, our protagonists that wish to escape their existence and dream of a better life, aka somewhere that's green. They want to get out. We understand that they may be in a position where they have no choice but to make a deal with the devil in order to get out. So we know that and we relate to that and we root for them to escape with their souls intact, hopefully. I mean, immediately feeling that Roger Corman influence, which I kind of mentioned in the What's on the Box segment, that was the director of the original film. And Roger Corman, known for being, what is it, the uh, the B-movie king, uh, the low-budget movie field with a blend of horror camp. It's a bit outlandish. There's some violence mixed with sexuality and a little perversity, all an attempt to appeal to the masses. And it totally works in this movie for me. That's an initial thought. And Steve Martin. I mean, 
Steve Martin as Oren Scrivillo, DDS, Doctor of Dental Science, just freaking going for it, throwing 100 miles per hour and chowing down the scenery. You thought Audrey 2 was hungry. Steve Martin is hungry in this one. I cannot think of another comedy or any film offhand that makes better use of cameos. I smiled or laughed every time I saw one. This nails the cameos. Audrey 2. What can you say? The puppetry, the animatronics, the effect. I was blown away watching it today on a rewatch. I haven't seen this film in a long time. It looks amazing even today. Funny how with such simple, uh, slight, subtle lip movements, Audrey 2 seems like he's really speaking the words and singing the lyrics. He completely comes alive. I laughed out loud several times, and most of the time, that's just the barometer for me. If I'm laughing out loud, it's working. And I always had a thing for Ellen Green in this movie. And by the way, does anyone else see kind of a resemblance to Amanda Plummer? I don't know why that kind of popped out at me. Regardless, she's her own woman. She's her own character. She plays a timid and squeaky character to perfection and then transforms into a powerhouse when need be. She's a great actress. And beyond that, I'm a sucker for a damsel in distress. And it's the boobs in that dress. I'm just going to be honest, guys. It's the boobs in the dress. What else can I say? That was the the 80s kid in me right there uh, reacting to that. So she's a standout in more ways than one. Hey, I thought upon rewatch, revisit here, Rick Moranis actually doesn't have a bad voice. Holds its own. It's good. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, speaking of voices, Levi Stubbs is Audrey too. The voice is iconic. I had forgotten just what a big deal that is. I mean, feed me. Of course, that's an iconic line, et cetera. Or see more, feed me. But just hearing the voice again today was like, wow, what an incredible, incredible tone he has throughout. And this is what a movie musical should be, in my humble opinion. Now, there's something to be said for the spectacle scale and production value of something like, the, like even in recent times, West Side Story or In the Heights, not to mention all of the classics. But I have an appreciation for this kind of musical. And I know, Russell, you probably do too, as you mentioned, the Venn diagram, the comedy aspect of it, and just the plain, simple fun of it all. It's not a brain buster. There's not such a serious, heavy moral dilemma in it. The movie's smart in it in that way that it makes the characters that die, they make them unlikable. So we don't care. It's just one of the quick, feel-good, fun ones. It's light. Everything's light. It's weird. It's funny. You watch it. You feel better. And It's dark content, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's dark content. Like, I mean, you're dealing with murder. You're dealing with foul play. You're dealing with even abuse and stuff like that. But it's all handled with levity, which is brilliant. You said it much, much better. It's not necessarily light. It's just handled with level levity so that it feels light. Yeah, well said, man. That's it. You watch it, you feel better. You're home for supper time. I freaking love this movie. I was so pleasantly surprised. I hadn't watched it in many, many years. So, Bill, do you have some initial thoughts after revisiting it today? Yeah, so I had originally seen the original 1960 version of Little Shop of Horrors first directed by Roger Corman, black and white. My dad's store was selling it for like five bucks. So he picked that up. And I remember, I think it was that in the groove tube. And I remember the cover was just this blue box and it had a picture of Seymour with the Audrey. In the original, it's Audrey Jr., not Audrey Two, but the Audrey Jr. plant and just a crappy description on the back of the box. And it touted the fact that Jack Nicholson was in the original Little Shop of Horrors. So I remember watching it's a short movie. And I really enjoyed it as a kid. I thought it was a really cool movie. And then I remember hearing they had made that into a musical. And I was thinking to myself, how the hell did you take this movie about a plant that eats people 
and make it into a musical. What what a crazy concept. What Of all the ideas, you're going to make this into a musical? But it was a smash hit. And then next thing I know, they're making it into a movie. They're really different, though, too, what you're talking about. I've seen the 60s version as well. And it's a very different experience. It's It's enjoyable, but even the plot line has some rather significant alterations. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a mix and match of the two because in the original, uh, Seymour lives with his mom. Audrey is not dating the dentist, but there is the dental scene. It's actually Seymour that does the work on the patient, which is played by Jack Nicholson. There's actually more kills in the original, but nothing matches Audrey 2 in the remake because in the original, it's just all it does is just open and close its mouth and that's it. Whereas, man, they nailed it on this remake, and it is amazing. And who better to do it than Frank Oz? I mean... Master Yoda. Yeah, Master Yoda, Miss Piggy. The list goes on and on. He knows how to do puppeteering work, and it is amazing. And that voice is iconic. The songs are great. I had the soundtrack on record, and it's kind of cool because I, wa- I watched this again... And then I went back and watched the original just to compare again. I almost wish they'd make a third one and take some of the elements from the first one and put it into the other musical. Because there was a great running joke in the f- original movie where was, there was this woman who would come in every day to buy flowers because a member of her family died in some crazy, tragic way. And it was like a running gag. Every day she would come in, she's like, Oh, my cousin's uncle, third stepson died. Blah, blah. That was kind of a funny thing. And that was something I kind of missed watching it in the remake. I was like, oh, that was such a funny character. You should have left that in there somehow. Another great thing, too, was when you have the uh, Mean Green Mother song, it reminded me of Grease Lightning. Because as a kid, you would love the Grease Lightning song. And then when you got older, you realized, oh, there's a lot of bad language in that. And there's a lot of innuendos. And I can't believe I used to listen to this all the time as a kid and did not ever pick up on that because you were just so into the refrain. You're not really listening to the rest of the music. It really reminded me a lot of uh, Grease Lightning from Grease. That's so true of music, though. Like, if you sing it happily, it changes it. Like, if you put all this energetic music into it. I mean, I remember my mom grabbed, like, my Green Day albums and, like, my Everclear albums and stuff like that and was, like, highlighting, like, you know, hey, this is really sad stuff. Yeah, it doesn't really go down that way, though. It's like, I don't know what to tell you. You're not, you're not getting it. Stop. Reading the lyric sheet's probably not your friend on this one. So um, No, not at all. I was mad at her for highlighting my lyric books. I had to rebuy those albums because I'm, I'm an audiophile and I, I cherish my albums. So I had to buy them and trade off the other ones. That's funny. What you're talking about, though, how the music tone is changes it completely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think another thing about watching this movie, it made me upset about how much I miss Rick Moranis. Mm. I'm so bummed that he stepped away from acting to take care of his family. Great move. I, I totally get that. But I was like, oh, man, a whole generation has missed out on him. And I used to watch him all the way from SCTV, just watching those mannerisms that he does. I was like, oh, yeah, he kind of does that move in Ghostbusters. Or he kind of does that little smirk in My Blue Heaven. So it was just kind of fun just watching him and just like, oh, I really got to go back and revisit some other Rick Moranis stuff. I, I loved him. Do you feel like he got out at a good time? Is it like Jordan leaving out on a high note? If you watch him later, he's going to get older. And what happens with actors, particularly in comedy, they reach a certain age where they can't play the dad anymore. And then they have a harder time getting these roles and stuff like that. I've heard Chevy Chase talk about this. Once you're 
to a certain age, they stop handing you scripts as much. Ben Stiller's mentioned this as well before, like one of the reasons he's moved behind the camera more. I mean, even titans of comedy, it happens to them. So maybe Rick Moranis kind of understood how the industry sort of worked and just said, I'm going out on a high note, like George Costanza. Russell, that makes too much sense. <laughs> but no, you're right, though. You're right. It, it is sometimes better just to walk away and, and make your audience want more. But supposedly he's coming back in the next Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So right, I'm right. I'm super excited to see that, just to see him in it. Yeah, it did make me miss him. And then even John Candy, who we've talked about in so many of our movies already on this pod, just seeing him pop up and, and do a little brief cameo. It's so weird. Yes. <laughs> Wink Winkleson. Or what is it? What's his, what's his character's name again? Yeah, Wink Winkleson. God, he's so obnoxiously amazing and hilarious. Jimmy Fallon totally stole the whole like radio announcer that does all the voices and sound effects like with one guy. The whole the concept that he ends up doing, I think he totally took John Candy's bit and like stepped it up into I, that whole like, I'm going to do all these voices in one studio kind of thing. I thought there were more people here. <laughs> <laughs> he goes from reading the weather real calm and then he just explodes into this other character. <laughs> But yeah, Russ, I just want to say thanks for picking this one out. I don't know when we would have gotten to it or even thought about going to it because this is really our first musical, I believe, for this pod. It's not a good time for musicals. The 80s, you're starting to not see that genre. Although we did do Grease 2. Yeah, we did do Grease 2. <laughs> Which is a different, it, that's a diff, it, it was unintentionally funny. Right. Although we're going to catch a lot of, well, I'll catch a lot. I'll take the flack for that one. That one does have a huge cult following. We did find some uh, highlights within that film, but we'll, we'll call this our first real musical comedy. Yes. All right. Um, so let's move on to our favorite scenes and moments from Little Shop of Horrors. So Russell, what are some of your favorite scenes or moments from Little Shop of Horrors that you want to share with our audience? Ah, it's really hard to narrow it down because it's a very good watch throughout. But I mean, there's some great moments and I love the energy of the scene where Audrey too, the killer plant is talking to Rick Moranis as Seymour and he's telling him that he's, uh, you know, you need to feed me. And he's like, I don't think I could feed it to anybody. He's like, yeah, you do. And he's like across the street and it's so perfectly conveniently laid out. We see Dr. Scrivello being just so dislikable. You know, he's riding up on his motorcycle, making Ellen Green's character come up behind him, like running. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm behind. And I mean, he's just really terribly treating her abusing her in the silhouettes and uh, calling her names and that just trips him because that's 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 his sweetheart he loves her you know and he's all in and the plant got like knew all the right buttons to push and so that music number of like the guy sure looks like plant food to me the guy sure looks like plant food to me like this is the turning moment of how this is all going to go down this is the moment where he's entered this world and after that, you're opening yourself up to cut up body parts and feed it to a plant. And I mean, it's that moment where you've entered into a very dark, but also very funny world. That's one of those energetic moments that I love. I don't know if I, how many am I allowed to give? Do I have to keep it to one? Oh, no, we'll go around. You can do, you can do some more. All right. All right. So what about you, Jason? Yeah, I just wanted to comment what Russell's what Russell was, was talking about because, again, revisiting this after a long time and just fascinated by the set design and how wonderful everything looked. And it has such a musical theater feel to it as if I was watching a stage play, but on film and the performances, everybody knows exactly what movie they're in. And they're just killing it. And thanks, Bill, for bringing up the strength of Rick Moranis and how, yes, I miss him too. And that he's got that rubber face and he makes those facial expressions and it just tells us exactly how he's feeling. And he's just wonderful. And he's a, such a lovable loser. 
He's a lovable loser. And in this, what Russell was talking about in that scene, I almost forgot. Oh, yeah, I'm watching this movie totally engaged. And I'm like, Audrey, too, hasn't even spoken yet. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's just kind of the flower has grown a little bit because Seymour has been feeding drops of blood from his fingertips. And Seymour, then all of a sudden you hear the feed me. And it's so creepy and weird. And what is happening? But I love, Russell, the fact that Audrey, too, is not just alive and speaking, but this sentient being that is emotionally manipulative. You nailed it. The fact that he starts manipulating, right from the get, starts manipulating our poor Seymour into basically wanting to go kill Steve Martin. So it's great stuff. And you're just like, as soon as Audrey 2 starts talking, you're like, this looks too good. This is, I believe this 100%. How did, how did they do this? Another, I should say, not just my barometer of laughing out loud, but just the how did they do this kind of factor is in that right away, especially in that scene. Good stuff. My first favorite scene, I'm trying to go a little out of the box because like Russell mentioned, how do you choose? How do you choose? This movie flies by. It's just one iconic scene after another. And here's what I'm calling my scene. What a strange and interesting plant you have. This is, again, a little outside the box. I am a big Christopher Guest fan. I love the mockumentaries. And so at this point in the story, we know that Mushnick's flower shop is going under due to a lack of business. And Mr. Mushnick decides to send Seymour and Audrey home, stating that he's going to close his doors for good. There's no business anymore. Just then, Audrey comes up with the idea that maybe Seymour should display one of his exotic plants that he's always collecting. So he brings up this odd-looking sort of bulbous Venus flytrap-looking thing, and Seymour reveals that he's already given it its own name, Audrey too which endears him to the actual Audrey. And she squeaks, which is, I don't even know how she made that noise. But Seymour says, maybe if he puts a strange and interesting plant in the window, it'll draw customers into their shop. And Mushnik shoots down the idea immediately saying, just because you put a strange and interesting plant in the window, people don't suddenly. And then of course, here's Christopher Guest who appears out of nowhere, credited as customer number one. And he says, excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that strange, interesting plant. What is it? And... He has the most deadpan delivery of all time. And I'm like, his performance is small, but brilliant in the way that it's a combination of bad acting, feigned enthusiasm, and as if he's under a trance, as if the magic of the plant has put him in this hypnotic trance-like state. He looks like Smiling Bob from the Viagra commercials. Yeah. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it before. Where did you get it? as if he knows he's just there to be a catalyst for an exposition speech by Seymour. And of course, we see a flashback, and Seymour explains how he was walking in the wholesale flower district during the total eclipse of the sun. There's a small moment in this where he's doing the flashback sequence, and Seymour's walking across the street because he thinks the the guy's not going to be able to sell him any flowers, and uh, the eclipse is about to happen. He walks up on a a doo-wop quartet, and you see Rick Moranis is about to join in with them. And just then the eclipse hits and I'm like, what would have happened if he just randomly decides to join this quartet? The eclipse happens, green lightning bolt comes down and the plant Audrey 2 magically appears, which he buys for a buck ninety-five. Pretty good deal for an incredibly sentient alien plant. Back to the present. We have Christopher Guest once again saying, well, that's an unusual story and a fascinating plant. While I'm here, I might as well take $50 worth of roses. Can you break a hundred? Oh, well, then I'll just have to take twice as many. (laughs) And all of a sudden, things turn on a dime and everything's coming up roses for the Mushnik flower shop. Then all of a sudden, they just get hit with a barrage of customers as if the magic of this plant has really drawn everybody in. 
and now it's a super successful business. Anyway, my focus here was on Christopher Guest because I adore him and he's so young and clean shaven in this and almost unrecognizable. Love him. That deadpan delivery, every performer in this just knows exactly how to serve the story and what their role is and what to do. There you go. You slightly stepped on my first favorite scene, <laughs> Jason. I apologize. I actually like the song itself that explains the introduction of Audrey 2. And the song okay. is called Dadu. And and this is how the, the movies are different from the original to this one. Because in the original 1960 version, Mushnik is going to fire Seymour because Seymour is so inept. And Seymour grows it from seeds. So, but in this one, we see that the Audrey, Audrey 2 comes out of the sky and ends up in the flower district where he buys it for a dollar 95. But it's it's just a great little song that he's explaining. And like you said, it's like a doo-wop kind of rap where he starts with, I was walking in the wholesale flower district that day. And then you hear, shoot, da doop. And I passed by (laughs) this place where this old Chinese man, chung, da doop. He sometimes sells me weird and exotic cuttings, snip, da doop. And then he notices there's nothing there at first. As you mentioned, he crosses the street. The eclipse happens. This green light comes out of the sky. And Seymour turns around, sees the little Audrey, Audrey 2 there, picks it up, buys And then we go on to find out where the origin of this plant is. And we know there's something very bizarre about it. But we don't know what is going to happen. So... I thought the song is just really catchy. It has a total Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe to this. Yes. Like it does in the credits too, like the green writing on the black screen. Yep. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. and the way they take this roots rock kind of early rock and roll music and again, inject dark content of the lyrics and stuff into it. Obviously not maybe as off risque as Rocky Horror Picture Show is, but it was a formula that really worked really well for, uh, time warp and for so many of the other elements of rocky or picture show and it's a formula that works really well for them here i'd say ashman is has more momentum though for as a song composer to your point obviously the time warp's an icon but this movie doesn't lose rocky or picture show might lose some steam in the back half to your point they have a variety of kinds of songs and they all just hit so well oh yeah well said yeah all right, Russell, we are back to you. What's another favorite scene or moment you want to share with the audience about Little Shop of Horrors? It's not a long one, but this is Bill Murray going in to see the masochistic Dr. Oren Scrivello. And he is a pain, <laughs> I guess. Uh, he gets off on pain and he goes in and he walks into the dentist's office and he's sitting there anxiously waiting to get in. And he sees this very upset and tortured girl coming out with headgear like prying her jaw open something that looks like it's out of saw and like on her headgear and he's like what did you get oh you're very lucky and he just can't wait to get in there he's saved up for this root canal and he's he's excited because he's not been to this dentist before he's been referred to him from somebody whose mother referred him to and just it's this weird thing he won't shut up the whole time just he's talking nervously about what an honorable field that dentistry is and all the tools and that as Scrivello wants to hurt him and Steve Martin's pulling out all these frightening looking devices uh, bone saws and weird things that like have spikes on them they're not necessarily even dentistry tools these are not just typical drills these are very these are like surgical elements and he's getting really excited he's looking at it with big eyes and he's dropping his mouth like oh this looks great and Sure enough, once he gets started to operate it on, he's, uh, he's got his leg up in the air. He's going like, yes, yes, this is wonderful. Oh, my. And like, 
Dr. Scrivello wants to hurt people. He's a sick individual. We didn't necessarily mention that yet. So he gets off on hurting people. And this isn't going well. It only makes him try harder. And the harder he tries, the more Bill Murray gets into it. And eventually he kicks him out of the office. And in great frustration, he turns to Seymour. And he's who's waiting in the waiting room to come see him, plotting to hold him at gunpoint and hopefully feed him to a plant. But things change. And of course, he, he holds up the surgical instruments. He's like, does this scare you? Yes. Yeah. If I've held this up to your mouth, would you like it? No. Well, then get in that chair. Like he's uh, he's ready to take it back out on him and all of his frustration from that. So, And then perfectly, once Rick Moranis gets in the chair, he puts on the gas mask, not for the patient, but for himself. And it backfires on him. And all the gas little flaps that inject laughing gas into him go overboard and he knocks himself out, which ends up perfect that Seymour doesn't actually have to kill him. He just has to feed him to a plant. So it is so great. And as he goes out, the dislikable character goes, what did I ever do to you? He's like, it's not me. It's her. Who? Oh. So just a great scene. Great momentum. Steve Martin's killing it. This is the only time in a movie that Bill Murray and Steve Martin share screen time together. And these are like powerhouses. This seems not very long. It took a very long time to film took way longer than you would think to film in terms of directing and bill murray ad-libs a lot so when you get these two powerhouses next to each other i don't know if it's because they're trying to one-up each other or whatever it comes off as seamless it comes off as completely perfect but apparently these two hilarious hilarious individuals i guess when you start to ad-lib in comedy you just gold starts to happen but it's hard to contain the magic when you work with bill murray it's one of those things where you have to let him have rope and figure out when to pull back. So you got you to gotta find out how to contain the genius there. So there's just so much genius that's overflowing. It's like John Lennon and Paul McCartney in a recording studio. It's just of comedy. Nailed it, man. What a great, great scene. I'm glad you covered it because I did not put it on my list specifically hoping you would. <laughs> and you did. You just said it, man. This film is filled with a murderer's row of iconic 80s comedic actors and they're all powerhouses. And when you put those two together, I mean... You talk about having a command over your body as a performer, because these aren't just naturally gifted comedians. They don't only perform funny or say things that are funny or speak, uh, have comedic timing uh, or improvisational talent, but they're physical comedians. And this scene is one an example of that. And I'm just going to clarify for myself, Steve Martin, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve Martin is the sadist, Bill Murray is the masochist. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm clear on who enjoys inflicting pain and who enjoys receiving pain. And Bill Murray, I can't imagine trying to go up against him when he's just so quick and so going at lightning speed. And I would love to see the outtakes from this scene. Just what ended up on he's the, the cutting only room character floor. that wants to actually find the Hellraiser cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So yeah, well done. Well done. It's just, it's a phenomenal scene. And speaking of Steve Martin playing Oren Scrivello DDS, I'm going to go to my uh, first favorite moment, and I'm calling it the flying motorcycle moment. <laughs> it's just really quick. So we have Seymour is cleaning up the shop. He's dumping out the water from some of the flower uh, pot holders and getting ready to close up when he hears a high-pitched laughter in the distance. <laughs> and then he hears the roar of a motorcycle engine mixed in, and then the laughter gets louder. And all of a sudden, Steve Martin, a.k.a or in Scrivello, literally drops in out of the sky on his motorcycle. He comes flying in as if it were an airplane and lands perfectly and stops immediately on a dime in the alleyway behind Mushkin's flower shop. Steve Martin dismounts the bike and takes a whiff off his nitrous oxide one-hitter. 
and crackles again. <laughs> it's just one of the best entrances of all time. Steve Martin, again, chewing up the scenery, killing it, overacting, making faces and knowing what, again, exactly what kind of movie he's in. It's perfect. That's my one of my favorite moments right there. And I could go into the rest of the scene. He he just does some really, really funny shit for about two minutes and then gets back on his bike and takes off like, I don't know, like a like a witch on a broom. It's great. I think Steve Martin is one of those guys who like, if other people try and do this sort of thing, they come off as trying too hard sometimes. And he goes past that point yeah. and goes, he enters a end zone of special comedy gold that few people have the ability to tap into it works whether he's got that accent going and he's just he's such a jerk in the scene and being so abusive toward audrey and can't get seymour's name right and then just hops back on his bike with audrey and takes off it's can't get enough of him in this movie yeah it's great because it is a character in the original movie that maybe has four minutes of screen time is nowhere near as over the top as steve martin takes it and I had to get to the writers of the musical also to see the comedy gold with that character to really build it up and, and make it a presence as part of the story. And uh, they definitely cast the right person for it. My uh, next favorite scene is uh, Mr. Mushnick is eaten by Audrey too. So in this point in the movie, after Seymour goes to kill Oren and uh, luckily Oren in a way accidentally kills himself. Seymour takes him to the flower shop and proceeds to chop him into pieces. And while this is happening, Mr. Mushnick sees Seymour get the ax and start chopping him up, but doesn't realize, doesn't know why he is doing it. He doesn't realize that he's chopping him up to feed him to Audrey too, because Audrey too survives on blood. So come the next day, Mr. Mushnick has decided that he's going to take Seymour to the police, turn him in because he thinks Seymour killed Oren just so he could have Audrey to himself. And that's not necessarily, well, it is the case, but doesn't understand the grand scheme of things. So Mr. Mushnick is going to take him to the police. And while this is going on, Audrey too is upstairs and hears what's about to happen. And Audrey realizes, you know what? I need Seymour to stick around, so it's time to make Mr. Mushnick my next meal. And we have the background uh, singers who have been throughout the whole movie, and they kind of narrate what's going on. And it's just awesome because they're just singing, like, come on, come on, come on, come on, the whole, the whole time. And just and just the tone of what they're, they're singing as the scene is playing out, and Mushnick takes Seymour upstairs, and they pass the plant, and before Audrey attacks Mushnick, then the singers come into the store and now they start singing, it's supper time, it's supper time. And Mushnick thinks he's being smart by saying, you know what, maybe I won't turn you into the police. Maybe I'll just let you go and you just leave town and you'll keep the plant with me and I'll take care of the plant, thinking that he's just going to reap the benefits of and the money and the glory of taking care of the plant. So Mr. Mushnick is asking Seymour, you know, what do you feed the plant? How do you take care of it? And Seymour, of course, is looking at Mr. Mushnick and over Mr. Mushnick's shoulder is Audrey too. And you can see Audrey too's kind of like, send him over and we'll get, we'll get rid of your problem. And while Seymour's explained to Mr. Mushnick what you're supposed to feed the plant, he backs Mr. Mushnick off close enough that Audrey can now eat him Mr. Mushnick turns around, sees that Audrey 2's got his mouth wide open. Boop. Next meal. It's just a great scene. It works really well. Mr. Mushnick in the original movie does not die. So this was kind of a surprise to see this happen when I originally saw it. In both movies, was really a caretaker of Seymour, even though in the original movie he was more 
upset with him. But um, in this one, it is kind of crazy, too, because he kind of took care of Seymour and now he's going to use him for glory himself. And Seymour and Audrey, too, kind of turn the tables and get the upper hand. And Audrey can continue with his plan and Seymour can also continue with his plan of hopefully winning over Audrey. Yeah, I was just thinking because I'm like, as you were describing it, I was rewatching it in my mind and how effective the mood setting setting the table was here for this and with especially with the lighting and you talk, speak of the singing trio, which serves as the Greek chorus throughout this film. You know, are, are they in like sequin purple dresses in this? It's a lot. It's a little bit darker. And they're kind of in the dark in the shadows, kind of. Yes. You don't really edge, see them you know, that much. Edging him on a little bit, kind of coming through. And they're kind of almost very seductive and alluring in a way. And uh, But as the, yeah, as the tension builds in the scene, they, they start coming more into the store because they start right. or they're outside the store watching it. And then they make their way in. And then they're actually like right there witnessing what is going yeah, on. Yeah, they're actually they're in the not there, but they're saying, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, we talk about suspension of disbelief, and that's what musicals are. I mean, it, it all hinges on that, right? And watching the scene is one of those things where the singing trio is there. Uh, but so there's just different aspects of actual filmmaking in this that are great with the the lighting is effective. And like you said, uh, it provides a certain mood. And this is the one point where it's like, oh, gosh, because you're wondering, you just want Seymour to remain good. You don't want him to murder anybody because we want to continue to brute for the lovable loser. But he kind of pushes Mushnik towards the open, gaping mouth of Audrey, too. And uh, Mushnik uh, is the one that actually leans into the mouth. So I, I put that on Mushnik, not on Seymour. You put that out there earlier, though, that they make you sympathize. They keep you from sympathizing with them because he's extorting them. Right. He's, he's basically saying, I'm going to get rich off of you. I'm going to take your plant. You just go away. Go away and just get quiet somewhere. And he has stepped on him throughout. I mean, he hasn't been nice to him. I mean, Correct. it makes Seymour all the more lovable for how thankful he is. But he's not really that nice to him. So, now he's taking advantage of him for the most part, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. He's funny and he's likable. And clearly, Bill, your top two scenes here are Mushnik. Uh, intensive scene so you must like vincent gardenia so so he's not that dislikable but on the other hand this movie does a good job of making you sure that you sympathize with the right characters and that you're ready to let go of mushnik at the time without a little bit of loss too you don't see the sheer wrath of audrey too and what's to come right and also to go to your point of levity this scene is still just so much there's a lot of fun being had there's a playfulness to all of it which is great with the choreography you know, and the, the puppetry is so important to making this work, though, because yeah. like if you had a CGI tentacles that look like something out of the mist or something like that, like this isn't fun anymore. And so the lovable creatures that Frank Oz is helping to create move the number of people that goes into making this move, they perform slow motion so that they can get the subtleties down in what they're doing. And the amount of craft that really goes into this, when you start to study this movie, your appreciation really starts to go up because it wasn't a cheap movie. And the amount of work, like I said, they have a dozen people moving the Audrey at times to not show them, to doing this with practical effects, to doing everything real, not with any computers. It's really, really impressive. And to your point, I think you mentioned it earlier, it doesn't show. It still looks really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Russell, you said you've seen it on stage. Yeah. So how, I mean, there's no way they could pull off what they pull off in the movie. No, you go for the campy thing. But I mean, also you said in the 1960s version, I mean, that puppet is super campy. So yeah. All it does I, is I, just I, open and close its mouth. 
the leaves right. fall off and it doesn't do it. Does did it have any tentacle work in the? Does it have like tentacle work yeah, in them? Yes, but again, I would like to see it done by big leagues. It never was a Broadway; it was an off-Broadway performance right. to begin with. So I would like to see that bigger production of it to see what they do with the play. I've seen more mm, local-based ones that are still good. You still have people who can sing and stuff like that. But you're you're tilting into the fact that the tentacles are like fabric stuffed kinds of pieces that they, somebody behind them is moving them around like with uh, sticks or broomsticks or something That's like that and imagining. moving them around. Yeah. So when you do a local production like that, this is also a forgiving, again, due to the silliness of what you're doing, you're in a comedy. It's okay. I mean, you're a local production. We're here all having fun. We're not the pros. And you also didn't pay $90 a ticket to get into your seat either so you get what you pay for and then you have a good time so it's a lot of fun still i recommend it if you get a chance to see it on play i will say the original play uh is darker seymour is eaten and audrey is eaten in the end of the original play and that's something that they changed here and i don't know if you want to get into it too much but there's a much longer ending yep where the that's what happens ending in this of the film, film yeah and they didn't like it. Two separate test audiences didn't like this movie because of that. And you can actually see it. If you go online, I'm not going to go through all the sources and stuff like that. I think actually you can YouTube the, the alternate. You, yeah, I watched, you can. Uh, yeah, I watched we'll, it. We'll post it in the show notes. And it's funny because um, last week we covered Fatal Attraction, another example of the original ending had to be changed because test audiences didn't like it. That, that ending's better, though. You made the original ending, ending for Fatal Attraction? Fatal Attraction. And we, I yeah, think we agreed sure. on that. I, I No, I definitely said, yeah. We covered that one as well, and I, I felt like the whole reanimating out of the bathtub thing was just cheap on that one. I don't want to go into Fatal Attraction on, on, right. <laughs> on Little Shop of Horrors, but no, this one, this is one that I like better. You leave and you have a happy ending. I don't really yeah. want Audrey to die. She's really sweet in the alternate version of like, I, you know, she gets chomped up and he pulls her out and he's like, she's going to die. She's like, I want you to feed me the plant so you can go on and be successful. And like, she's just such a, she really does suffer from poor self-image um, and, and, and low self-esteem. But then the, the plant goes on a massive rampage taking over the world and it's ambitious. And all of these massive effects go into it. There's more no, musical crazy. numbers. Some of the musical numbers are fantastic, actually. They cut good music. But this is the tone that you have to hit for the movie and they fixed it. So Oz went back and I got to give him a ton of credit as a director. The source material doesn't have you doing this. It seems like the studio is just telling you what to do, but he had the ability to throw out $15 million worth of work and cut that because that's what the people wanted to be happy. And it involves pride to swallow your pride, to be able to sit there and say like, I spent literally a significant portion of my budget on this whole last 15 minutes of the movie and we're just going to cut it. And he listened to the, what the people were saying. And I mean, I think the movie is far more appreciated and loved because of that. Mm. I like a happy ending. I would agree with that. I think um, it also goes with the tone of the piece. When we're talking about levity this whole time, that what a, it would just be, what a bummer of an ending to, to, you know, have your main protagonist and lovers die tragically being eaten by this alien creature. And as comedic as they attempted to make it. But, uh, you know, the one thing I did like about that original ending, though, which I would have liked to have seen on the big screen is the very, very, very end, because they make Audrey 2 so lifelike and realistic, is when he comes bursting through the screen. He actually comes through the movie screen at the end, as if it's like a three-dimensional thing breaking into the theater, which you're watching it. And I thought that would have been a cool effect to see on a big screen in a full theater and see what people's reactions would be to that. Otherwise, I, I prefer this ending that they, they kept for the theatrical release. Yeah. Yeah, I heard there was somewhere that did a screening where they actually had a 3D Audrey puppet would come through the very end of the screen 
for the director's cut, and then they would drop tentacles out of the rafters. So it'd feel oh. like the, the, the theater <laughs> itself. Funny. I was like, oh, my Love God, it. that would be so cool. That's a textbook out of Vincent Price's book. He made a movie called The Tingler. It's kind of like old 50s chiller kind of like feel, but he uh, he put like vibrating motors under people's seats in the theaters. So like then they kick the lights out and like the motor would go off in different people's seats and people got startled at the time. So when you just watch it on AMC later, you kind of go like, ah, yeah, this movie's okay. But what you just said, the experience of breaking the plane between you and the audience, it's cool. I love it. Uh, Russell, do you have another scene you want to mention before we move on? I'm surprised nobody's mentioned it, but suddenly Seymour as a musical number. That was my next is, one. I have it. That's is exactly what I Legitimately as good as any musical is going to drop on you. Ellen Green's got pipes. And this is a note for how to make a good musical. I, I, I think Jason said that once, but instead of casting, you know, I don't know. I'm going to pick on Mamma Mia now, but instead of casting like Pierce Brosnan and people like that who can't actually sing and uh, Meryl Streep when they're like, oh, she can sing. We like her, right? We're rooting for you. And like, Get somebody out of the play who does this every day, and this is what they do, and they kill it. When you watch Les Mis, Russell Crowe sucks. The girl who plays Eponine is awesome. Why? Because she's out of the play. She's a Broadway star. People can't sing that well. Yeah, Eddie Redman can sing, kind of, but he doesn't sing like that. So in this case, this shows Ellen Green's full power of what she has in her voice, and it's really good. Rick Moranis holds his own well enough, and as Jason said, I'm really surprised that Rick Moranis had this within him. He has a musical career and side hobby, and part of what he leaves acting to do is to pursue some musical interests and stuff. So he is a talented musician within his own right, but the song is really good. Howard Ashman, just for clarity of like, this guy is responsible for Little Mermaid, Aladdin. Before he dies, he dies and Tim Rice finishes that one off. Beauty and the Beast and Little Shop of Horrors. And so he and Mankin go on to do great, I mean, seriously great musicals. So this whole soundtrack is fun. This one will hit you in the heartstrings. I mean, these two people doubt themselves. They want to be with each other so bad, but they don't realize they can be. So it's touching. It's good. And it's fun to see that this movie that can have you rolling on the floor from Bill Murray, you know, in a dentist chair, also sit there and tug at your heartstrings. That's really good movie making. When a serious movie has comedy that injects it, it makes it stronger. And when a comedy movie has serious moments in it and brings heart into it, you just go to a whole nother level. Frank Oz is good at that too. Yeah. By the way, as a director. Well, you pretty much took my next favorite scene and killed it. So I I don't know if I have much to add. I mean, speaking of the music, there are so many great numbers in this. The dentist song, obviously, uh, Steve Martin kills it in that number. I am your dentist. But uh, suddenly Seymour is romantic. It's bittersweet, especially how it begins because you have Audrey finding out that her boyfriend, the dentist, has gone missing and may have met his demise through foul play. And she feels ashamed because she secretly was wishing for it. And then you have Seymour, who is saying, yeah, wouldn't you feel as though you'd be better off without him? And she kind of agrees. And little do they know, they each have been pining away for one another. And then comes this song. And like you said, Ellen Green has just been so timid and meek throughout. And she just... Speaking of blooming, I mean, she comes alive in this song and you're like, oh, my goodness, this woman has pipes and she's playing within the singing and within her vocalization. She's playing the character like it's mm-hmm. and that's what you said, Russell, is that this is a professional Broadway performer. That's a triple threat that can sing, act and dance. It's good casting uh, the lyrics Suddenly Seymour is standing beside you. You don't need no makeup. Don't have to pretend. Suddenly Seymour is here to provide you sweet understanding. Seymour's your friend. 
Suddenly Seymour is standing beside me. Don't give me orders. He don't condescend. Suddenly Seymour is here to provide me with sweet understanding. Seymour's your man at the end, which is great. And then it's a really pretty song. It's very melodic. It's one of the more memorable songs from this. If you hear it, you're like, oh, I recognize that one. I remember that one. This is a hit, and uh, that's all I'll say. That it's it's wonderful. The cinematography too is amazing. It's a they cool have, like, this setting. Ruined, yeah. They have this archway, like they're in like this ruined, burned out basement, and there's some steps that lead back up to the street level. And they use that archway really well to position them on opposite sides. And so mm. they're positioning them as like not being able to reach each other. And as they move throughout the musical of the song, they're kind of coming together physically, and the camera work is reinforcing them coming together through this song. The camera work is really good in how it pivots, moves, and then they actually move up the stairs together and they look up to a brighter future together. So the spatial movements and the way the camera works with the Ashman music and the Mankin music is just, it's just so well done. Can't say it much better than that. Just amazing. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Anyway, we can move on, Bill Bant. All right. Yeah, let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yeah. So what plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints would you like to file with our complaint department? Um, Russell, why don't you start us off? I think I would like to see maybe a few more musical numbers kept in here. They actually cut four songs and they introduce one. Me and Green Mothers, special written for this movie. So you can you can Google these. Close for Renovations, one of them. Mushnik and Son. Uh, it, it's just it's just the gas in parentheses is what one of them. Call Back in the Morning. And um, as you pointed out, there's one that's cut down and condensed as he's gaining success. And there's a more artistic portrayal of how that all goes this movie's short because they cut the whole like back track of the movie it was going to be 145 but when you do that i think you have room for more music when it's this good so mm. in fairness when you keep saying give me more of what you're already doing you're saying you have an excellent movie that's my first criticism of just you cut some good music and that final cut scene has this a really cool scene where the greek chorus is in front of the american flag and it's really that's a cool music number that we lost and I'd almost like to say, like, wouldn't it be cool if, like, Seymour got hit in the head with a brick and, like, as he was, like, coming to, envisioned this horrible world that where the plant takes over and he's like, no, I got to stop it. So I wish that you could have your cake and eat it, too. I want to see all that great puppetry work and then finish it off. 
Yeah, that would have been cool to somehow save that ending because that stuff is super cool. And like I said, we'll put it in the notes so you can see uh, what the original ending was all about and watching the Audrey 2s run amok throughout the city. I loved it. And I was like, oh, man, I understand why I didn't have it in there, but you would have wished they could have repurposed it somehow. And I think, uh, Russell, I think he had a pretty good idea how to do that. Bill Bant, do you have a complaint? All right. This is not going to be a popular complaint. I hate it already. And I think it's just I'm not into Disney characters in movies. So Audrey, to me, is just the weakest point of the movie. She's she's a great singer. Oh no! I know. Oh, Jason, pull this arrow I, out of me. I know. I, I can't because I'm. I feel like I've been stabbed in the back because I'm. I'm dying over here. I'm sorry. I think too because I compare it so much to the original, and I like the original Audrey better and how she's betrayed. She just doesn't do it for me, and it's crazy too because I mean she's the one from the original musical, and yeah. she's beloved. But hey. It's called difference of opinion. Would, and we yeah, all it's have a taste them. thing. I get it. It's a taste thing. Would you want Cindy Lauper to do it? Because she was considered. Right. I don't know. With Cindy Lauper's voice, I almost feel like she would have done the same thing. She has a pretty unique, unique voice too. Yeah. Uh, what about Madonna? She got considered as well. Do you want Madonna here? <laughs> I don't know if that would have worked. <laughs> I like how he's egging you on. Russell's just going to keep throwing out all the the, uh, the casting possibilities. Going, would, would she have been better, Bill? Would you have been happy then, Bill, if it were her? <laughs> Tell us. If you watch the original, the original Audrey reminds me a lot of Frenchie from Greece. Mm, that's fair. So maybe somewhere in between what Ellen did and the original Audrey. That's what I wanted. I actually think this is interesting. I've not met anybody else who has actually seen the 60s version one first. I've told people about it and they've gone back and seen it and enjoyed themselves and had their own little experience with it. But usually the 80s musicals like right, yeah. frame. Leonard Malton in his uh, movie guide book saw the original one first obviously because he's Leonard Maltin he's old he saw everything um so he saw the 60s one he did not like the 80s one nearly as much yeah he actually gives he gives the original three and a half stars and he only gives this one two and a half that's right and he feels like this one's more mean-spirited and uh dials it up too much perhaps he doesn't go in and I don't have the full article but like the book gives you an excerpt from it but I'm suspecting Lawrence Gravello as well as Ellen Green to your point these are very cartoonish creations i find that cartoons acted out in real life are very funny like when jim carrey's ace ventura like he's a cartoon character in human form critics i find don't find this to be funny i remember ebert at one point said of home alone like cartoons in real life aren't funny and this isn't funny like if wiley coyote gets hit with the brick it's funny but when you do it to a person it's not i'm like well for one you're wrong it is and then um and then so i just I suspect that's where Malton's coming from on that. But that's just me reading between the lines. Like I said, my take, my complaint. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, say, hey, you're owning it. You got to stand your ground. We're just mm -hmm. going to mute your mic now, if that's okay. all right. <laughs> and moving on. Give him the Apollo hook. <laughs> all right, Jason, what do you got? Now, see, so guys, I, I'm glad that you've given us some input on the on the original Roger Corman film because I, I now need to go back and see it. I have not seen it. You I can it. also see it for free on YouTube at the moment, but these things come and go. So if you end up listening okay. to this in two years, the yeah. people, the powers that be may take it away. Yeah, there's a lot of free colorized versions of it, Yeah, which isn't too bad. I think after about five minutes, I, it didn't bother me. But yeah, the original is in black and white, if you can, watch, if you can catch that. Right. So. You'll like my next hold. You'll like my next hold, Bill Dan. <laughs> well, I have a his complaint. I was thinking maybe, you know, Mushnik's flower shop would have done better had it been located in or near the wholesale flower district. Isn't that where people go to get their flowers? 
I was just like looking at it going, well, that's where Seymour goes to get his flowers. Mushnik is in the wrong part of town. He's on the wrong side of the tracks or something. I don't know. He's on the corner. I was just kind of laughing to myself. I'm like, hey, maybe, you know, location, location, location. Well, yeah, it's funny, too, because even walking in the store itself, you wouldn't even know it's a flower shop. It has, like, <laughs> nothing in there whatsoever. Yeah. I was like, what are you selling? You don't even have anything to sell. That's why no one's coming in your store. It's pretty sad. But although that's reflective of, like, retailers that, like, are about to go bite the dust, when you go into a store that's, like, maybe three generations old and then they don't have hardly anything in the store because they can't sell it, but then, like, they don't want to take the inventory of it, like, that's kind of true. Hmm. Well, that leads, leads to a, a question I was going to ask later, but... Like who supplies them because they had nothing and then all of a sudden they just get bombarded. Like who's their supplier? They're getting a lot of flowers in to supply a lot of demand all of a sudden. I was just like who? But uh, hey, these are dumb questions from me because all of this is suspension of disbelief. It's just go with it. But I'm going to ask them anyway just because I'm amusing myself and I'm selfish. Whose turn is it? No, we're back on Russell. All right. Yeah. Sorry, I talk over everybody else's turn. That's okay. Um, <laughs> You're the guest. Um, you can do what you want. In the 1960s version, there's a character, and he goes around different flower shops eating flowers rather comedically by, like, dumping salt on them and just, like, eating them. It's very funny. Given how many awesome cameos there are in this, if somebody just popped into Mushnik's shop and said, gardenias are my favorite, I love these, and, like, just starts dumping salt on them and, like, eats it off, like, this is our only customer. He eats the flowers. This is our only customer. I think that would be a fun little not, I, I they took so very little from the 60s version. That little thing that was a running gag of the guy cuz kept popping in eating flowers while he was talking. He had nice stuff like he had nice suits and stuff like that. Like it was just like I come to this flower store because the gardenias are very tasty. Well, how appropriate would that have been especially since the Mushnik the actor isn't his last name gardenia? Is that why you're saying? Yeah. That? Uh, well, it just happened to be right. kismet on that one. But I mean, I would think that it would be great to get somebody like a John Lovitz or somebody like that to like come in and like yeah. deliver this in the 80s at that right point in time. Uh, he might not have made it yet on Saturday Night Live. So it might, you might have to get somebody else at that point. But uh, he's not a household name by 86. Still, yes. you, get the, you get what I'm going for. Though, oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Jason, in the original, it's a Joe Dante regular Dick Miller who plays the plant eating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he's one of the two faces you'll you'll recognize if, if you do watch it. So Dick Miller and Jack Nicholson. That's great. He's good in it. Yeah, he's pretty good. All right. Audrey 2 using the phone. How does he know Audrey's number? Oh, or how does yeah. he even know I, to use the phone? I wish I kind of showed something like that. Bill, that was my – my. I have that two complaints from now. That was my yeah, – Do you really want to see him opening up like the, the bookkeeping, like the bookkeeping drawer and like pulling out and like pulling the tentacle down the sheet and saying like, okay, this is where you send your paychecks to. But it would have been funnier if maybe he uses the phone book and then just sees him scan down and then... If he's flipping through a Rolodex? Yeah. A Rolodex. It's a cool scene, though, how they did that. And just the fact that like, after he makes the phone call, he literally checked for the change. That, yeah. that, made, me, that made me chuckle. <laughs> I was like, how do you know Andre's number? I said the same thing. Good call, Bill. Good call. I totally agree. Anything else? Yeah, I've got a complaint. I mean, look, Mr. Mushnick is not likable. We don't mind that he is swallowed whole by Audrey, too. However, does anybody care about what happened to Mr. Mushnick? Family? Friends? He disappears. I mean, that's my point in the movie. And there's no mention, like, afterward. Like, the cops don't go looking for him. Orin, the dick dentist, disappears, and the cops are like, what happened to Orin? Mr. Mushnick bites the dust, and nobody cares. No? No, he doesn't have any family, friend, loved ones? Anybody wondering what happened to him? 
Now, I'm kind of surprised that Audrey, too, or Audrey Jr., likes being fed with the people fully clothed. I would think, like, hey, hmm. can you take the boots off before you shove that down my throat? Like he's the aliens in more modern sci-fi films today that spit out the inorganic matter? Correct. So that's like an equi- that's like an equivalent of like eating a Snickers bar with so much fervor that you don't take the paper off. Yeah, just like, eat the ah, paper. That's, like, yeah, that's like what comes to mind. I'm like, come on, man, take those boots off. There's paper on it. <laughs> what about as another like change one thing? I um, my dad's a dentist, and movies that make people afraid of the dentist, it's a real thing. So <laughs> that's true. I mean, um, making people afraid to see the dentist, that's always sad. So Finding Nemo and like evil dentists and things like that are not. Um, I think. My dad likes this portrayal of uh, Steve Martin because it goes over the top enough. But, hey, movies actually scare people. Kids actually get scared of stuff going into the dentist. So there's a hole for you. Dentists are nice people. Your teeth will hurt more if you don't see them. That's true. Do your checkups. It's important. And I'm going to piggyback on that, Russell, by just jumping to one of my additional thoughts for this film. Because I actually wrote down, if you went to a new dentist and you heard the song Dentist from this movie playing in the office... I would stick with that dentist because he has a sense of humor and that's awesome. And I was going to say, hey, maybe you should suggest that to your father. He should put that on the radio coming out of the speakers as you're just like relaxing back in the chair, trying to to not be nervous or fearful. And then all of a sudden this hilarious song from this movie comes out. I just I think that'd be showing a good sense of humor on behalf of the dentist. He doesn't actually like easy listening, but unfortunately there's like a psychological thing where people actually do feel more calm from like elevator, easy listening music. Mm, so no. because everybody's so nervous going to the dentist, my dad has to be subjected to easy listening music pretty much all day. So. Oh. Power to him. All right. So let's uh, move on to, Hey, it's that actor. So in this oh, segment, yeah. we spotlight a character actor. You've seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, Hey, it's that actor. Russell, who's your choice for Hey, It's That Actor? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Jason said, like, every time they get a role, like, they stick somebody in there, whether it's Jim Belushi, like, coming in and just eating it up for a little while. So, But I actually want to go to Beatrice Reading, which is not somebody you might realize as well. Beatrice Reading is the old woman who opens up the movie Skid Row. And she's the black woman who's coming down the alleyway with the bags in her hands. And she's a Tony-nominated singer and actress and comedian. She can also sing the walls down like she is amazing she's got such a powerful voice and she opens this movie up for real so if you didn't pick up on my comments before i don't really care if i know who the actors are if you can sing that well you probably belong in the movie so she also had some awesome vocals great pipes just wonderful job from beatrice reading she died not too much longer after this but even at her age man what a good voice stand out for sure um, Jason, who do you got for uh, It's That Actor? I almost uh, went with your choice, Russell. So that was a good call because she really did. I was like, who is this woman? Just belting it out. Then I'm like, well, you know, I'm a fan of those in the voiceover world. So I decided to go with Stan Jones, who plays the narrator in the beginning of the film. I'm going way outside the box on this just to give a little shout out to the VO guy. Now, Stan Jones appeared in over 30 television series productions and in eight films. I am borrowing this from Wikipedia. He is mainly known for his voice work in the 80s. And Stan Jones is best known as the voice of Lex Luthor, the Superman villain, and the leader of the Legion of Doom in the Hanna-Barbera television series Challenge of the Super Friends, as well as voicing the characters Scourge, Lord Zarok, and Weird Wolf in the television series The Transformers. 
as well as Transformers the movie. He also played the voices of Kingpin and Dr. Octopus in the 1981 Spider-Man animated series. He voiced the Milkman, uh, Wordsworth, and Riff Raff in the television series Heathcliff, also known as Heathcliff and the Cadillac Cats. Stan Jones, voiceover man, and he passed away in Los Angeles at the age of 72. R.I.P. Stan Jones. All right. Yeah, I, I went pretty simple. I just went with Jim James Belushi, who played uh, Patrick Martin, who shows up near the end of the movie and wants to buy Audrey 2 from Seymour. He wasn't originally cast in that role. They actually filmed the other scenes originally with Paul Dooley, who I think is is still mentioned in the, in the credits. But I, I just wanted to miss Jim Belushi because we have not done a movie with him on our podcast yet, Jason. No. But no, we, we, we will take care of that later on also with uh, Thief, who's starring James Caan and written and directed by Michael Mann. So I just want to do a little shout out to Jim James Belushi. Very good. Very good. Are we uh, rolling right along into fun facts and trivia? Yep. Fun facts and trivia. What are some fun facts and trivia we have about Little Shop of Horrors? Yeah, Russell, you can go first. What do you got? Do you have anything left? Yeah, it's <laughs> great. Yeah, I do. I do. So originally, Steven Spielberg was the executive produ- was was slated to executive produce the film, and that Martin Scorsese, of all people, which I can't really see, was was wanting to shoot the film in 3D and wanted to do this, uh, but the production stalled. Lawsuits were filed from the original film screenwriter and actor, and John Landis was also attached to the film for a while. So it's funny, some seriously big names wanted a hold of this movie. <laughs> I don't, it's hard, it's hard to believe their clout and, and who they are wanted to do this. Maybe Spielberg can, uh, had that touch for, for the, uh, animatronics and the puppetry and stuff like that. But I mean, still, like he was, he was trying to produce this thing. And I, I do maintain Frank Oz is the right man for the job though, because through his work that he does with Jim Henson, I mean, he doesn't have as many directorial works to him, but Dark Crystal. You did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I, that movie's awesome. Yeah. And it also has that heart and the comedy. Steve Martin comes back again on that one. I wish it was Steve Martin again on House Sitter. That one's maybe not quite as good. But then he comes back and like nails it out of the park with like, what about Bob? And um, I mean, even later, some of his later stuff's maybe a little bit more hit and miss. But I mean, Bowfinger's very funny. So I think Frank Oz not only has the tone of the direction, but he also brings the ventriloquism side of what he's doing to do everything and the music and everything like that. So it's rare that I won't say, I don't need you, Martin Scorsese, take a hike. But I am going to say that today. Yeah, that would have been a very interesting take, especially in 3D. I can't help but think of it as turning into The Departed for some reason or something really heavy like Goodfellas. So I don't know. I can't picture the plant. I, like if Scorsese's doing it, I certainly start thinking of the plant and being like, what do you mean I'm funny? Definitely. But yeah, uh, Frank Oz had a pretty good directing filmography. I'm surprised he didn't do more stuff. Well, it's unanimous on this podcast. We love Frank Oz. Yes. He also didn't really want to do it initially either. He was finishing up Muppets Take Manhattan, which while that may not be my favorite Muppets movie, there are no bad Muppet movies. (laughs) (laughs) And Oz initially rejected this and he um, had an idea that just from the cinematic aspect, the project that he spent a month and a half restructuring the script as I mentioned, there are a number of changes from both the original movie and the stage play. And so he gave it that old polish and shine. And then with Geffen and Ashman liking what he had written, they came on board. So if you don't get Oz retouching things, you probably don't get Ashman and Mankin, Mankin, and the music's probably not as good. So, I mean, it's a domino effect and Oz is probably that first domino. So just to go deeper into the uh, yay Frank Oz 
Oh, absolutely. But I think you're right. And it's just fascinating for those out there that uh, are willing to do a little bit of a deep dive and get into the research and you see how it all comes to be. You realize how many ingredients go into making a movie. And that's the magic of movies because one ingredient is off and then the balance is off. And that's kind of the word that keeps resonating in the back of my mind when you guys are talking about this is it takes such a temperament and you mentioned tone, a tonality and have an eye, not just an eye, but an ear for it, a feel for it. And then balance to get the right balance and the right ingredients of you mentioned obviously the the writers and the musicians and the composers and the directors and the and people behind the scenes doing the animatronics and the puppetry and it's just it's amazing stuff you're like why did this movie work and other movies don't work well i don't know we're right now we're just giving a lot of credit to frank Oz because he pulled it off uh, I was going to mention this because and i know bill's a 007 fan he's a, i call him bill bond all the scenes were filmed at Pinewood Studios in England, making use of every soundstage there, including the 007 stage. Frank Oz and his crew did not want to shoot on location as it would tamper with the fantastical mood of the film. Part of the giant 007 stage was used to film the Suddenly Seymour number. But because of the size, the stage was impractical to heat properly and thus caused breath condensation to appear from the actor's lips. This was countered by having Ellen Green and Rick Moranis put ice cubes in their mouths. <laughs> Beautiful. Awesome. Um, so Little Shop of Horrors was released on December 19th, 1986 in 866 theaters. On an estimated budget of $25 million, it grossed $38.7 million domestically in the United States. It debuted number four at the box office and stayed in the top 10 for another six weeks, never placing higher than fourth. Very surprising. Did you know Mean Green Mother from Outer Space was the first Oscar-nominated song to contain profanity in the lyrics and was the first to be sung by a villain? No. Wow. A.K.A. Audrey, too. I learned something in my own podcast. So one that I really like is that there's no blue screens involved with the Audrey 2 scenes at the time. So they're not like just shooting the plant in a, in a vacuum and then dropping in a backdrop. The plant was made in six stages of growth, so they had different models. And there were three versions of Motion X Shop making it possible for the two units to work with different size plants at the same time. Each of the plants had to be cleaned, repainted, and patched up at the end of each shooting day because moving it took a toll on what it was doing. So you were constantly mending the model as it goes along. And that would take up to three hours in time, just depending on the size of the plant that they were using at that time. So again, I cannot reiterate, the more you dive into this, yeah. the more you understand the craft that we like. All these visuals that we like, and we keep saying it feels like a stage play, but it also feels like Tim Burton, kind of like heightened elevation. It's really important that you stop and realize how many pieces that go into this to make it right. So it's a very well-crafted movie. You don't think, oh, this movie is so well-crafted. Like, but I mean, it is. I mean, it wasn't a cheap movie. They had a high budget and they, the special effects that they do to do this are legitimately good. I know. I'd love the coffee cup version of the Audrey too. I'm like, how do they not sell those? <laughs> or make a little piggy bank and you put your quarter in there and it'll do a song from the movie. I would have bought one of those. Yeah. It'd be out on my plant shelf because it'd be the only thing green on there because everything else usually dies. So marketing tool right there. No doubt. Yeah. They didn't merchandise this properly. Right. Bill's there to help monetize you better. Merchandising. All right, so uh, as for reviews, and we already discussed uh, Larry Malton's take on this, but on Siskel and Ebert at the movies, uh, they gave the film two huge thumbs up. Roger really loved it. He thought it was, it was the cult movie of cult movies that was going to take over Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's kind of funny we mentioned that in the beginning. He said 
he could see that running at midnight screenings for the rest for the rest of time. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato meter score of 90% and IMDb rating of 7.1. So it is a very beloved movie. I find it interesting that the critics' tom- tomatoometer is a lot fresher than the audience score. Mm. Oh, yeah, I know. Which is usually not the case. It's usually the other way around. Yeah. We're very close. It is usually the other way around. So anybody listening, do your part. Go fix that because raise that raise that audience score. Hell yeah. This movie's awesome. Anybody have anything else for facts? Well, I'm just going to piggyback once again off of uh, Russell's comments behind the scenes trivia about the puppet, about Audrey too, because while developing the mouth of the plant for the dialogue scenes and musical numbers, Frank Oz and uh, his crew struggled to figure out how to make the plant move convincingly. So the solution presented itself while reviewing test footage of the puppet when the film ran backwards or forward at a faster than normal speed, the footage looked more convincing and lifelike. They realized they could film the puppet at a slower speed, making it appear to move faster when played back at normal speed. So when the interaction with actors was necessary, the actors, usually Rick Moranis, would pantomime and lip sync in slow motion. The film was then sped up to the normal 24 frames per second and voices were reinserted in post-production. Levi Stubbs, the voice of Audrey Two. His recordings were pitch shifted through a harmonizer when slowed down so they were coherent for Rick Moranis and Ellen Green. Ugh, it's a mouthful, but uh, it's cool stuff, man. That's the magic right yeah, there. Wow. That's a lot of technical complications right there, pulling that stuff off, especially practically. So you're a Mushnik fan, Bill, uh, clearly, Vincent Gardena. Mm-hmm. Um, John Candy initially gets offered the role of Mushnik, bigger part. But he uh, he goes for the more minor role for Wink Wilkinson because he's so weird. How would that sit well with you? I think John Candy made the right move. I figured that it would have been fun to watch uh, Audrey too swallow John Candy though. It's not necessarily in the hey, it's this actor part, but I also like the young girl leaving the dentist office with all the horrible looking headgear on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bill Murray scene. That's Heather Henson. That's Jim Henson's daughter. Right. So. I read that's awesome. I read that. Yeah, Frank Oz bringing in his his Jim Henson connection there. Oh, Love I didn't it. see that. That's cool. All right, so before we wrap up this week's episode, are there any additional thoughts any of us want to share with the audience or questions we have to pose? You guys have any other uh, additional thoughts? Anything you want to say? Some some uh, deep, deep thoughts or deep questions? Maybe philosophical questions? Philosophical questions. I'm I'm good. Russell, you got anything? No, I feel like I should have something witty ready to go for that. I, I really I've I've dropped the ball. Well, I'll, I'll let you think about it. There's no there's no ball. There's no dropping of anything. Uh, our balls are intact and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> I have a question. How exactly did Orn the dentist die? Now, obviously, we know he's got the two tanks on his back. Was it just a lethal mix or lethal dose of the gas? Was it one? How does that nitrous oxide work? Did like the nitrogen stop and it was too much oxygen or vice versa? And that's what poisoned him. Just looking at this from a stupid nitpicky. Dude, scientific you asked some very standpoint. specific questions. So I, I don't know. Like, how do they, how did he get the phone number in the book? I mean, these are, these are <laughs> I mean, it really reminds me of uh, like uh, Luke Skywalker's his hair was dry in the trash compactor. And Mark Hamill <laughs> was like, Hey man, like my hair is dry. That wouldn't be dry. And Harrison Ford said, Hey, hey, kid! If they're looking at your hair, we're all in trouble because it's not that kind of movie. Point taken. 
yeah, that's the thing that happens when we do these podcasts and then we go through these movies with the fine tooth comb and then that, that's when we see these things, things we never saw before. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, wait a second. About. We're just making fun of it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll throw this out to you both, both uh, of you gentlemen, you fine film aficionados, especially both of you fans of the classics. Can you name a few of your favorite musical film comedies? Or do you have a favorite outside of this film? Singing in the Rain. There we it's go. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah it's that's very a, funny. That's a good one. It's, very, Speaking it's a really good one. Guys and Dolls. That's a really good one. I like Chicago a whole lot. Yeah. From, from I, I know I just jumped several decades ahead there. No, it, <laughs> it works. It was great. Um, yeah. These are The Music Man is also one that oh, I like. That's one of my too. favorites. Yeah. Little Robert Preston. You probably don't want to just hear me those musicals all day. <laughs> no, no, I no, it's great. I actually was going to be a little tongue in cheek here and throw out Top Secret. That's one of my favorites with Val Kilmer doing his best Elvis impersonation and uh, doing his musical numbers throughout. Not a classic musical. You know, I'm going Blues Brothers. Hell yeah, that counts in my book. It's certainly a music movie for sure. I think we can throw Grease in there for sure. Grease is fun, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Seven Brothers for Seven Wives is fun. Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, I was looking at some some fun lists uh regarding the musical film comedies or musical comedies in film. One of my all-time favorites, talk about old school. And this is one of those that's not weird, it's just the court jester. Either of you a Danny Kay fan? I was growing up. Love me some Danny Kay. Talk about a great physical, just great comedian. Oh yeah. It's funny when you look up like best musicals in the eighties, it's not as deep decade for them. No, not at all. Right, right. In the eighties, no. Yeah, sticking to that decade. Yeah. That's all I got, gentlemen. If you don't have any other uh questions, additional thoughts, I don't know. Is it uh time to move on to our movie rating? Time for us to rate this movie, and we use a five star rating system, with zero stars being the worst and five stars being the best, and half star increments are allowed. Um, since Russell, you picked their movie today, it's safe to assume you'll give it high marks, but will Jason and I agree? So Russell, why don't you start us off with your rating for Little Shop of Horrors? You know, I didn't realize I loved it as much as I did until I covered it for our own show. So, I mean, it's one of those things where in my head I was like, it's very, very good. But then the more I studied it, the more I dove into it, the more I was like, I have watched this movie a lot over the years. And have you ever just realized like when you're just eating a meal, it's like, yeah, I really do like macaroni and cheese. It really is one of my favorite things. So like, <laughs> you know, why didn't I know this about myself? So I, I gonna, I'm i going to go five stars here. It's one of those things that snuck up on me. I didn't get it until later. Like I got it like in high school and I came, I came in on the Bill Murray dentist scene and I was like, what is this? And I don't watch movies from the middle. Like I'm hardcore. Like I was like, I got to find this movie and then get it and start it from the beginning. Same way. And I was not disappointed. And um, it's funny that I was like, I was mad at my dad. I was like, why didn't you tell me about this? Like, this is, seems like something you would have told me about. He's like, I don't know. I saw the original one. It kind of sucked. So, I mean, I didn't think this would be any good. Remakes are normally worse than the original. And I was like, you got to see this then. So, and then I showed it to him and his mind was blown too. So five stars for me. I, I love it. And I, I should note on, on our show, there's, there's a panel of us, if you will. I hand more of five stars out more easily than everybody else. So everyone's like, it's not a perfect movie. So I'm going to give it four stars and 
And it's like, no, I just really love it. It's five stars. That's okay. I'm a sure thing. I'm a sure thing. (laughs) That's okay. Every guest we've had on just happens to give their movie choice five stars. So you're not, you're not bucking the trend there, Russell. So it's okay. We, we know that going in, you're probably giving it five. How about you, Jason? Yeah, I'm going to ride the Russell train here and go with five stars. I mean, I don't know. I was done watching this and I was scrolling through our segments, categories, and I came to the rating and I was like, you know what? There's just nothing really wrong with this movie. Why would I dock it for anything? I feel great. You know, it was it was like eating macaroni and cheese. It really was was great. It was it's quick. It's entertaining. It makes wonderful use of the cameos. It's a just a bunch of really fun performances. I laughed out loud. Great sets. Audrey too looks incredible. It's got some really memorable songs, uh, which is very key in musicals. <laughs> you want some tunes that you uh, can sing along to, and you might uh, remember afterward. I had a good time. What's not to like about this movie? That's it. It's, it's just an hour and a half of good stuff. Five stars for me. All right. I'm bringing down the average. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah. If you talk about Ellen Green one more time, so help me. All right. I'll, I'll skip her. But yeah, four, four, four stars. Uh, great songs. Great sets. I know they had to have the happy ending at the end. I still thought it was a little weak. I figured they could have maybe tweaked it a little more to make it more exciting of how they get rid of Audrey too. And uh, I won't mention the actress. So yeah. So four stars for me, I would say catch the original and catch this, do a little one, two punch. So four stars for me. On our show, we have superlatives at the end and we have a recast where you must recast somebody. Even if you love the movie, you still have to play the game. You must recast somebody and put somebody else in their place. Usually ideally it's from the, from the period we sometimes been that depending on the movie and stuff like that. But I am curious and you don't have to answer me right now. You can get back to me later, Bill, but who, who is your replacement for Ellen Green? Okay. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Cause I, I, <laughs> I didn't really think of who it was. I just liked the original actress better in the first one. Cause I was thinking like, all right, if I was to make the movie again, I would keep Rick Moranis as Seymour. I think Mushnick, I would have kept either actor. I think the hardest one was to figure out who to be the dental patient. Would I kept Bill Murray or would I go back to Jack Nicholson? You know, yeah. I would have kept Steve Martin as the, the dentist. I would have kept the original actress from as Audrey. So, yeah, I definitely would have done a, a mix and match. I would have brought back, the you know, the flower eating character that you said. Probably still would have done away with Seymour's mom. But I would have brought back, um, was it Mrs. Shiva? the one who would always have to come in for flowers because someone died. So I'll, I'll email you an answer. Or I'll put in for there we go. Ellen we just Green. put it in the notes. That's what we always say. You know what? We'll, That's true. We'll fix it in post. Fix it in post. Don't worry. Yeah, fix it in post. I'll hold this whole diatribe out of who I would have replaced her with. Russell, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, why don't you take a moment again to plug your excellent podcast and let the audience know where we can listen to you. Well, the Retro Movie Roundtable is available wherever you get your podcast. There's so many places, but it's out there. And we've been on for close to 200 shows now. We're on our uh, sixth season, so it's been a lot of fun. And uh, if you want to listen to 90 minutes more of Little Shop of Horrors, you can certainly do that because we covered that one as well. So 
Uh, we hope that you, uh, like I said, if you like the All Ages podcast and you like other decades for movies, we can help you with that. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, which we are not big Twitterers or Instagrammers, but we are in all of those places like that I just listed on social media. We're not the most active on social media, but we're out there and our, 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 uh, we're available at Retro Movie Roundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. So Awesome. All right, so that wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Russell for joining us today. Please check out the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Also, please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us at the All 80s Movies Podcast. Really appreciate your support. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, recipes to share, or future movies you want to talk about. Um, you can also find us on TikTok at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. So next week, we will be discussing Nighthawks, starring Sylvester Stallone, Billy D. Williams, and Rucker Hauer. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. We're not talking about one hungry plant here. We're talking about world conquest. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Now back to our show.